Uh, last week, <laughs> we looked at verses 15, I'm going to get closer to you guys, 15, 16, and 17. And what we saw at first was that Christ's disarmament of spiritual rulers and authorities should result in a law of liberty for the people of God. We saw practically what that means for us when people try to bind us with religious cords and, and force us to behave a certain way, uh, manipulating generally by fear, shame, and guilt, and saying, uh, thus says the Lord, where in fact, thus the Lord did not say. Um, Christ's victory was so full, so thorough, his enemies have nothing left with which to injure his people spiritually. So I think it begs the question, why then is there so much conflict in the church? Why the remaining heartache? Uh, and there are two obvious causes. First, the enemies are defeated, but we still have the remnants of sin, right? So I know myself to be a Christian. I know that I have put my, my faith, my trust, my confidence, my hope in the salvation of Jesus Christ, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so I seek to walk in a manner that reflects that profession of faith. And I don't do very well. Because so often the world, my own flesh, the devil, whatever you want to call it, crops up and I go wandering off the path of obedience into sin. Anytime somebody wanders into sin, there's conflict. There's going to be friction, disunity, disharmony. So that's cause number one. Um, <clears throat> spiritual life means spiritual warfare, according to Galatians 5.17, where Paul, the Holy Spirit, says... Um, the, the spirit sets its desire against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit that you may not do the things that you please. So we know and we anticipate a certain amount of conflict is a reality of being a Christian. So there's the killing of sin and that process of sanctification. This conflict is necessary and all believers are supposed to be on the same side, right? We're all fighting for holiness and sanctification. So th then there's another cause of conflict. <clears throat> and this is what Paul's addressing in measure in Colossae. Legalistic performance-based systems of do not handle, do not taste, do not touch uh, produce a conflict in the inner person which seems consistent with the idea of spiritual warfare. I'm going to say that again. Legalistic systems, and you'll see Paul use these words in a couple of weeks, maybe next week. Legalistic systems rooted in do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, that are false systems of religion, produce within a human being conflict which seems consistent with the idea of spiritual warfare. The problem with legalism, therefore, is that it is not your new desires aligning against the remnants of sin in your heart. It's not that you have this new, profound uh, want to follow Jesus battling with the remains of sin. That's not what legalism is. Rather, legalism conjures up practices by which the sinner might offset or compensate for the evil that I know I'm doing. So I've got this whole moral ladder that I'm going to climb now to undo the depths of depravity that I find exist in my own heart. As a result, what legalism does is it 
feeds the root of pride that's in every person because once I've set up my moral system that I'm going to follow, I start looking at everybody else and noticing they're not following my, my moral system. And therefore, because I am and they're not, I'm better than them. Anytime the root of pride gets fed, you're going to have conflict. Any legal standard, legalistic standard, and and all of them restrict freedoms. That's just a fact. Any legalistic standard, when successfully followed, will yield a crop of self-righteousness and judgmental attitudes toward other sinful, less righteous people. So then the outcome of self-righteous behavior is, 100% of the time, conflict. Always. Anytime you encounter somebody that thinks there's something that they're not, it creates conflict even just in you. And then you got to go talk about it with somebody else and like get confirmation, right? Now there's two people in conflict with the one that's not aware of it yet. And eventually it all builds and builds and builds until it bubbles over and you've got all out warfare. The legalist satisfies themselves that all the conflict in my life, if I'm a legalist, all the conflict in my life is proof that I am good while those who oppose me are evil. Thus, in a brilliant, despicable scheme, the devil is able to imitate the warfare which every Christian expects to encounter. He does it by substituting, fascinatingly, pride, envy, gossip, slander, strife, fits of anger, rivalries, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and factions... He substitutes those things, deeds of the flesh, where love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control are supposed to be. Conflict results and the self-righteous legalist comforts themselves even though they're the ones at fault. They comfort themselves and congratulate themselves on being so spiritual that they suffer so much trial. Indeed, spiritual warfare is a reality for all Christians, right? We know this. And just as licentiousness, of course he gets up at at this great Martin Luther King moment in my message. Just as licentiousness, if you fly in your mind back to Galatians, just as licentiousness removes the warfare by painting every evil under the color and banner of grace, all things are permissible, thereby licentiousness just takes warfare out. It's all okay. Do whatever you want. In the same way, legalism removes the spiritual part, leaving only the warfare. Isn't that interesting? This is why people with personality disorders usually gain positions of power in the church. Because they look so spiritual. Look how they're suffering. They must be spiritual. All their abuses can be excused as efforts to maintain holiness. So Paul reminds us that Christ disarmed the rulers and the powers that are spiritual opposition. We're not subject to a yoke of slavery anymore, right? So we shouldn't be intimidated by those who pass judgment on us regardless. (laughs) No, I'm not going to say that. Um, We shouldn't be intimidated by those who pass judgment on us on the basis of their their own made-up standards of morality. What we should do is bear in mind that they don't really have any weaponry to use against us other than their own imagined moral superiority, right? And what kind of damage do imaginary weapons do? Imaginary damage, yeah. And you'll say, well, but I've been very hurt 
by the words and the, the, the false accusations of the legalist. And I will say, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding and blood and you're striving against sin. And this is part of the reason the disciples were able to go away from physical beatings, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer with Christ. Because guess what he suffered? False accusations from legalists too. And thus he disarmed them from being able to put really the sting in their accusations. The right course then (laughs) when confronted with legalism is to carefully and honestly evaluate whether or not what they're saying lines up with what's in scripture, right? So here's how it doesn't work. If I say, hey, I haven't seen you at church in six weeks, everything okay, and you say, you're being a legalist, you're judging me. Okay, no, I'm not. Okay, first of all, because I'm asking out of concern, not because I'm, you know, desperate to fill the seats. And the word of God says in Hebrews 10, stop forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. So there's a clear biblical mandate, right? But if I come to you and say, hey, uh, you were wearing shorts and a t-shirt this Sunday and playing the piano and leading worship, You can't dress like that. There's a biblical standard we're trying to uphold. You could say, where is that written? And we can have a conversation about it. And, you know, I didn't mean any of that for what it's worth. (laughs) If the claim that I make is not biblical, then don't be intimidated by my judgments. If it is, then don't be intimidated by my judgments. Be moved to the throne of grace by what God has said, right? Uh, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food, drink, or the observation of special dates. That's what he said. Isn't it fascinating then that when you look at the fundamentalist, those are the three things that they go, food, drink, and special dates. You can't do that. You have to do that. Um, Finally, we saw that Old Testament ceremonies were shadows of what was to come, which was Jesus Christ. And and I encouraged all of us, myself included, that that if we are in relationship with Jesus Christ, we now possess the substance, not the shadow, but the substance. So let's not indenture ourselves again to to the shadow when we already have the substance, right? Onward to verse 18 we go. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Let no one pass judgment in 16, neither let anyone disqualify you in 18. And there is a difference between these two things. Um, There's a Lake Erie walleye trail fishing tournament held every year in Ohio. Uh, It's run by a fellow named Jason Fisher. I wonder if that's his given name. Anyway, teams pay $300 apiece to join. And evidently, folks who have no lives, who enjoy staring at a piece of string coming out of the water for hours on end, gather from Ohio 
in Indiana, Illinois, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan for this tournament. Uh, whoever catches the greatest number of pounds of fish wins the full pot of every team that puts something in. This sounds like a nightmare to me, but last fall, Jacob Runyon and Chase Kaminsky rolled into the dock with uh, a sure thing. Their haul of fish is moments from netting them the $30,000 prize, but Jason Fisher grew suspicious when, as the fish are being weighed, they're coming in at about twice what Jason Fisher expected them to weigh. So he grabs one and gives it a squeeze. Whatever he felt inside prompted him to take out a knife and cut the fish open, which caused a three-pound lead weight to fall out of the fish. <laughs> Examining the remaining fish produced a total of 10 such lead weights. And as the crowd jeered and mocked Runyon and Kaminsky, Jason Fisher, whose last name is unironically Fisher, uh, declared that this team was disqualified. Right. Sports history is filled with examples of cheaters being disqualified. The problem is that none of these examples uh, and, and nothing that I can come up with from sports really illustrates what Paul is talking about. Because it's easy to disqualify yourself from something by cheating, but how does somebody else disqualify you? Uh, there, there were no examples of this in sports. Um, not a single example of a human being disqualified. But then I thought of a horse. Now, please don't get PTSD, some of you, because I'm going to talk about horse racing a little bit. In 1968, 1968, this is May of 1968, when the, when the gates flung open at the Kentucky Derby and the 20 thoroughbreds launched down the track, the horse running dead last in the first turn wasn't even mentioned by the announcers. He wasn't even considered a front runner. He was barely known in the United States since he'd run most of his races in Canada because he was stationed in New England. You can watch the race on YouTube. And if you decide to go look 1968 Kentucky Derby, just like it's easy to spot because it's the horse that is last. I mean, he's last, last. Like there's clumps of horses and then there's just one back here by himself. And then after the second turn, he's close enough to the camera that you'll be able to make out the number nine. That's the horse you want to look for. Um, Dancer's Image is the name of this magical gray horse owned by a guy named Peter Fuller. And, and about halfway through the race, Dancer's Image takes off like a shot. And he moves 19 places in about 49 seconds of racing. It is breathtaking to watch. It's storybook. He wins the Kentucky Derby by a length and a quarter, having been dead last for the first half of the race. Why somebody hasn't made a movie about this one yet, I don't know. Two days later, on Monday, the Racing Commission informs Peter Fuller that his horse has been disqualified because the commission's chemist found traces of phenylbutazone in the horse's urine. That's horse aspirin. It wouldn't be legalized for another six years in the Kentucky Derby. So Fuller and his team are adamant the dancer's image had not had any horse aspirin for over a week before the Kentucky Derby, which should have been plenty of time for any trace of it to be out of his system. So they sued. 
They sued citing, uh, you know, crappy chemistry. They sued citing the possibility that there had been sabotage or somebody was trying to defraud the horse. There was five years of legal battling that, that ultimately ended with the Racing Commission's decision being upheld. And to this day, Forward Pass is the winner of the 1968 Kentucky Derby, even though it wasn't the fastest horse on the track. Here's where things get interesting. A month before the 1968 Kentucky Derby, does anybody know what important historical figure was assassinated? Martin Luther King. And immediately after the assassination, Peter Fuller, who was a full-throated supporter of, um, the word is escaping me, civil rights, there we go, a full-throated supporter of civil rights, gave all of the proceeds of a race that Dancer's Image had just won, gave all of the proceeds to Coretta Scott King, Martin Luther King's widow. The result of that was, as we approached the Kentucky Derby in the weeks leading up to it, they got death threats. Somebody set one of Peter Fuller's stables on fire. And people openly referred to Dancer's Image by a racial slur, even though it was a horse, which I'm sure didn't hurt the horse's feelings at all, right? But there's reason to believe that somebody dosed Dancer's image in order that the horse would be disqualified. I don't know. I don't know that that's what happened. It would make a pretty good movie, though, wouldn't it? It's the closest I can get to illustrating this idea of someone disqualifying someone else. So that's what we're going to go with. And really, like nobody can disqualify you. Only you can do that by cheating. But somebody can certainly defraud you, right? Maybe that's the better word here. Maybe I just don't want to admit that the ESV falls a little short and the NASB gets it right with defraud. Paul's warned us about being taken captive. He's warned us against allowing someone to pass judgment on us. And now he adds this third warning. Don't let anyone defraud you. And he gives us three ways this might happen in Colossae. Way number one is asceticism. Way number two is worship of angels. Way number three is detailed visions. We're going to go through these. If you want a nap, now would be a good time. Uh, asceticism is severe discipline of the body and avoidance of all forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons. You could probably go the rest of your life and never hear the word asceticism, right? But that's what it is. So think the Salise belt on the thigh, Self-flagellation, that's like the height of asceticism and, and denying yourself any indulgences. Paul uses actually a different word than asceticism. There is not a word that translates nicely to asceticism, so God bless the translators for doing what they did. But if you take this compound Greek word and break it in two, here's what you get. You get one word that means humble or lowly, and then you get another word which means feelings or emotions. Don't let anybody defraud you by proclaiming that you need to have low feelings or humble emotions. What's in view when the ESV says asceticism is actually more like that person who puts on a gloomy disposition to let everybody know how sad they are. So if you look at Matthew 6, in fact, let's do that. Matthew 6, 16, I think. And then James turns immediately to Matthew 16 because I, I just can't 
Whatever comes out of my mouth is what I do. Matthew 6, 16, Jesus says, When you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, fasting, I don't know where it fits in your economy of relationship with Jesus Christ, but the idea is basically you're depriving yourself of nutritional sustenance for a limited amount of time in order that when the body demands sustenance, you are reminded to do something spiritual, to pursue some spiritual goal, right? For a set amount of time. I am uh, against fasting amongst teenage girls. I am all for it amongst middle-aged men. That's all I'm going to say about it. One of my commentaries said, the truly humble man probably doesn't realize that he's humble. So it stands to reason that purposeful projections of humility, this is me talking, not the commentary, I need to get full credit, stands to reason that purposeful projections of humility done in an effort to make sure that everybody notices are precisely the opposite of humility, right? Okay, Jesus was dead set against hypocritical displays of religious fervor. So Paul says asceticism or forced sadness is a gateway to being defrauded. People who walk around misty-eyed in an effort to convey how complex and deep feeling they are are in grave spiritual danger. Uh, You might feel like I just took a long leap to get to that point, but if you stay with me, I'll prove it. Food for thought, though. Next time you're going to, you know, like sit down and hurt your own feelings for a little while. It needs to be said that this is not a prohibition against sadness, sorrow, or depression. This is, uh, this is forbidding faking it. It's a warning against pretending. Worship of angels. So this is two. Worship of angels is a little bit difficult to pinpoint at the time Paul is writing to Colossae or in the region of Laodicea, Um, since worship of angels in the early church, I mean, pretty obviously would have put angels on the same level as Jesus. And the church understood there is one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus the Lord, right? So you don't see until about 250, 270 CE is when you see the, the council addressing the, the angel worship that's happening in Laodicea. So 200 years after Paul writes this letter to the Colossians is when you see angel worship start cropping up amongst the charismatic churches. I think it's probably safer to say, based on the occult practices which were going on at Colossae, which I referenced a few sermons ago, ecstatic prayer, trance-like states, hysterical worship, it's probably safe to say Paul is targeting the idea that people could worship in the same way as angels. And that that's what they were pursuing. That's what they were trying to do. As if they only needed to deprive themselves of enough expressions of joy, shed enough indulgences, and meditate until they achieved this higher form of worship than the average Christian was able to achieve. The false teachers at Colossae were suggesting, in effect, that you cannot truly worship God until you get on my level of self-denial and misery. Here again... 
I need to take aim at, you know, Reformed Baptists. Um, because what my Reformed brothers get right in doctrine, many, too, too many, how's that, get wrong in the execution or the practice of the doctrine. So if you read Reformed literature, as much as I've read Reformed literature, what emerges is this idea that, that asceticism is good. For example, A.W. Pink ends up being a hermit at the end of the day. He won't even go to church because he's so busy just denying himself and writing. And I'm, I've been blessed tremendously by the writings of Arthur Pink, for sure. But the guy got it wrong. And Reformed literature is rife with stuff like this. Uh, among Reformed Calvinistic people, subjective statement, okay? This is a subjective statement. It's been my experience that amongst reform Calvinistic people, the most revered saints are the ones who can pray the longest. The most adored authors and preachers are the ones who can portray God as most terrifying. My personal delight in reformed literature, especially the Puritans, has little, if any, impact on my application of the scriptures. And Colossians is a giant reason why. I cannot agree, well, let me see what I can agree. I can agree that we can't have a high enough view of God. We're incapable of comprehending him in his fullness, right? I disagree that you are incapacitated from being in relationship with God because your view of him isn't high enough. That doesn't make any sense to me. I agree that scripture portrays God as entirely holy, other infinitely better than any sinner. I disagree with emphasizing those characteristics of God to the point where Philippians 2 no longer makes any sense. And here's what Philippians 2 says. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be clung to, but instead he poured himself out, taking the form of a servant, and was obedient even to death. For that reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that everyone on heaven and earth, at the name of Christ Jesus, their knees would bend and their heads would bow. What was it Jesus did that made him worthy of that name? He lowered himself to the point where we could ascertain God. So, if he accomplished the work of redeeming sinners, and he did so because of the profound love which the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have for sinners, is God still to be feared? Yes. Is he only to be feared? No. Come on, he loves you. He says, call me Father. Jesus, in John 14, says, I've called you friends. He's talking to his disciples. The knuckleheads who 20 minutes before were like, no, I'm the greatest. Just like us, right? Jesus says, I call you friends. God is not only to be feared, he is your Father, he loves you. So when Christian teachers fail to relay that information... They sound like the false teachers at Colossae. And one 
preacher, I will never forget. I'm in the audience and he says, uh, you know, the love of God is nowhere mentioned in the book of Acts, but you know what is? The wrath of God. And I couldn't help myself. And I said, well, the love of God is everywhere implied in the book of Acts. Just because the words aren't said doesn't mean you've plumbed the depths and reached the right conclusion. I didn't say most of that. I just said the first part, that it's everywhere implied. Be careful with this sad, depressed, woe is me, I'm so awful view unless it leads you to appropriately apply the balm of Gilead. If it leads you to appropriately embrace Christ and find joy and fullness in him, then by all means, empty yourself of all worth that you might find your worth in him. So through self-deprivation and misery, these false teachers are suggesting that the Colossians can attain angelic states of worship. This is third, during which they will see detailed visions. Now this is odd for us because we would attribute two of these things that Paul identifies to the charismatics who are typically not into the first thing, which is self-denial. <laughs> visions and angel-like worship. Go watch online a service at Bethel Church in Redding, California because they've got it all. Speaking in tongues, trembling in ecstasy, complete loss of executive function, claiming to have seen angels appear, claims that balls of electricity are shooting people into the air. They're screaming. There was even at some point they, they said there was a ball of glitter that began to fall from the ceiling. It was the presence of God. So all this is done in, in, under the pretense of being enraptured with God. Right? Now, I'm being a fundamentalist, legalistic, and judging them, right? Except... I'm just trying to illustrate that self-denial doesn't really fit that picture. When I'm chasing an experience, emotional experience, come hell or high water, nobody's going to stop me. That's not self-denial. It is chasing visions and trying to reach angelic states of worship. So it's two of the three things. What you slowly begin to realize, the longer I talk, <laughs> is that there are two roads that lead to the exact same destruction. You can wind up puffed up without reason by your own sensuous mind and you can get there like a hermit or you can get there like Bethel in Reading. Like the charismatic with no self-control. Whether it's self-loathing misery or ecstatic visions or self-loathing visions. Th these roads lead to the same place. So Paul warns this kind of thinking that we need anything in addition to the person and work of Jesus Christ in, or or in, in addition to the quiet, perhaps unremarkable life of a Christian who's just trying to live by faith, anything in addition to that will lead to our being defrauded. And then the question is, defrauded of what? Because I believe John 10, when Jesus said, they're in my hand, they're in the hand of the Father, nobody's going to snatch them out. So I believe but they're in danger of being defrauded, I think, of simplicity and purity of devotion to the person, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 19, Colossians 2. So they're doing these things and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. To take hold of anything other than the Savior, you must let go of the Savior. 
Spiritual maturity happens when we cling to Jesus. Worship is what happens when we cling to Jesus. Spiritual hypocrisy is what happens when we cling to our own merits and accomplishments. So earlier in Colossians, about one chapter ago, 115, Paul says, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So what happens if you remove a part of the body, an appendage? What happens to the appendage? It dies. It cannot exist detached ultimately from the head. What happens if you replace being in relationship with Jesus Christ with religious activity? What happens if you replace being in relationship with Jesus Christ with trying to speak in tongues? What happens if you replace being in relationship with Jesus Christ with trying to get into a trance, with being miserable or, uh, well, miserable as possible over your remaining sin, or with starving yourself, or with trying to see spiritual visions, or with chasing some spiritual experience? If you exchange being in relationship with Jesus Christ for anything else, what happens is this. Look at John 5. We're almost done. John 5, 39. John 5, 39. Jesus is talking, and you really have to read the whole chapter to get the full weight of this, but we don't have time. 39 says, you, he's talking to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness about me yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I am completely convinced, mostly because of my own experience personally, my own walk with Jesus, I am completely convinced that many people in church are doing exactly that. Let me do 10,000 other things to, quote, get spiritually right. Let me memorize the entire Bible. Let me run a ministry. Let me uh, stop this one sin that I just keep doing. Let me understand the second half of the book of Daniel. Let me get, make some charts of revelation. Let me like, fill in the blank with whatever the thing is. Let me, let me write a book about the, ooh, I found 14 different covenants in the Old Testament. Anything but let me be in relationship with Jesus Christ. What is it about that simple, easy, relatively small ask of God? Here's what I want from you. If you want to be saved from sin, I want you to believe in my son and I want you to walk with me daily. I want you to trust me as a friend and a father. What is it about that? that like I would rather memorize the Bible. God, can I just memorize the Bible instead? And if that were the expectation, I think a lot of people would do it. No, no, no. I want you to be vulnerable. I want you to confess your sins and so be cleansed and forgiven of all unrighteousness. No, I want you to see in the person and work of Jesus Christ the fullness of 
deity dwelling in bodily form and embrace it with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole soul. I want you to love your neighbor because of the love which is flowing from God through you, through the person and work of Jesus Christ to you. I want that to flow out to the people around you. No, 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 no. Let me instead construct a bunch of legalistic ladders and start putting everybody on a performance treadmill and and that's how I'll decide who I'm going to love. We'll do that. But simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ? Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his own sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Don't let anyone defraud you. Don't listen to me. Don't let in, don't, don't listen to me. No, listen to me. Don't let anyone defraud you. Don't let anyone defraud you. Because here's the deal. Jesus Christ is all that you need. Now that's not a little bit. That's the universe. He measures it in the span of his hand. It's all you need. And the invitation of the gospel is, if you believe with your heart that Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners, and you profess with the mouth, and you turn away from your sin, you'll be saved from it. And then the imperative of the gospel, and and I've said this 100,000 times already in two years, the imperative is that thing that you did at first, believing, Do it again today. Do it again today. It's so simple, and yet it's so powerful. All you need to have fellowship with the one who made you is faith that his work is sufficient to cover your sin. You don't need anything else. Jesus, indeed, is enough. Amen? All right, let's pray.